Hello, this is Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry, a series of conversations at the intersection of religious faith and public life. I'm your host, Chris Henry, and I'm so grateful to be joined today by a friend, a respected scholar, author, teacher, and leader, Andrew Whitehead. Andrew is Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and the author of American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Andrew has a new four-part podcast on Christian nationalism that was just released titled American Idols. Andrew, welcome to Faithful Discourse. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So grateful you are. The vision of this podcast, Andrew, is to create space for conversations at the intersection of religious faith and public life, and that is precisely, in my reading, what your work does. Those conversations, I've found, can be uncomfortable or challenging. I also think that's why they're so important. Your field of study is sociology of religion, and I wonder if you'd start by just telling me a little bit about how your interest in that work was shaped, and particularly how you came to be interested in studying the impact of Christian nationalism on our Christian witness. Yeah, you know, I I really do appreciate the, the opportunity to have this conversation, because as you said— um, yeah, as we look around us and all that's happening, mm-hmm. it's the conversations that we need to lean into that are difficult if we're going to try and make any headway, or especially for those that maybe find themselves feeling like they're just in the middle being pulled to opposite sides, yes. right? Like, what yes. what are these two things or, you know, what is happening? And so, um, yeah, I think this is really important. And so, you know, for me, growing up uh, in northern Indiana, really religious community, um, it was just kind of taken for granted, right? That like you were a Christian and you were American and this these are two parts to your identity and they they interacted seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Like there was no real, you know, push or pull between the two. Um, but then as I got older and, you know, whether it's interacting with different, you know, pastors, you know, through high school or going off to college or then graduate school, you know, starting to think through some of the implications of what it means to be an American citizen um, and what this nation might call you to do or to support, mm-hmm. and then thinking through what it means to follow Christ or to be a Christian and kind of what I was taught growing up in those churches and how some of that call may not align, mm-hmm. right, with what it means to be an American citizen. It, it sounds so simplistic and straightforward, but um, if— you know, you're anything like me, it really isn't, right? And the taken for grantedness of, of where we find ourselves, it, you know, you think it all works together so well. And so I think for me, some of those moments kind of ignited an interest in why do people do what they do? Why do they believe what they believe? How does this function and operate? And so through high school and in college, mm-hmm. I was just drawn to the social sciences. I just found it fascinating. And so that's kind of where it started. And then being religious myself, um, you know, wanting to understand more and more about how that operated. And so it was then in graduate school where that kind of personal journey of trying to think through what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and how it might operate according to different principles than nations of this world. Mm-hmm. And then marrying that with some of the um, you know, the the tools of social science that I was learning and being able to see kind of both of those come together and, and understanding not only what I grew up with, but obviously I'm seeing many other Americans, mm-hmm. you know, are, are 
you know, embracing aspects of, of this uh, cultural framework and what that means for us, what it means for our nation. Mm-hmm. And so that it was kind of this, you know, marrying of a personal and professional journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking particularly about this notion of um, idolatry, which is right at home in our uh, theological tradition, in the Reformed tradition. Um, our uh, The founder of our theological tradition said that the human mind is a permanent factory of idols. <laughs> right. uh, and so we have a healthy humility about uh, humankind's ability to keep our worship on God mm. um, and not be drawn to these siren songs of, of idols. Um, specifically, um, your discussion in the book of these three idols um, that are perhaps hallmarks of Christian nationalism and um, temptations for people of faith um, in every um, shape and form, fear Mm -hmm. and power and violence. Mm. Um, I I wonder if you talk a little bit about how each of those operates within the framework of Christian nationalism, really this notion of um, sort of the the pursuit of power, um, the, the kind of playing on fear and then ultimately how it might lead to violence. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as we study Christian nationalism, colleagues and and myself, you know, defining it as this desire to see a particular expression of Christianity privileged in the public sphere, to see the government vigorously defend that framework as central to what it means to be an American, what how we imagine the United States. Mm-hmm. And so like as I'm studying this and, and looking at Christian nationalism, seeing over and over what it's associated with, um, and then, yeah, through the lens of the Christian faith, thinking about, you know, what does this require of us? Um, because our identities and the groups we're a part of, they always require something. And so with this cultural framework of Christian nationalism, I saw over and over that um, really the central idol of it is power and and specifically a self-interested power Mm -hmm. that, you know, we, quote unquote, the we need to gain more of or defend our privileged access to this privileged access to power in order that we can um, protect what we see as rightfully ours, Mm -hmm. which in the United States could be citizenship, it could be access to social resources, Mm -hmm. um, the democratic process, Mm -hmm. basically the Mm -hmm. being able to make the world as we want it Mm -hmm. to serve our quote unquote group's needs. And so with that self-interested power, um, when you have it, you're always defining, you know, who has access to it. We do, but there's always going to be a them, Mm -hmm. right? And so the them, they're coming to take that, mm-hmm. or we're going to lose access to this self-interested ability to make the world as we want it. And so that's when fear and threat plays in, because the quickest way to know who we are is to know who we're not. Right. And so if we can define that outgroup and say that they're coming for us, that's going to circle the wagons. People are motivated. They're ready to mm-hmm. do what they have to do. And, and that's a function of how groups work. It's mm-hmm. not anything necessarily American or Christian mm-hmm. about it. It's just the way that it works. So when you are afraid and you're drawing these boundary lines um, between who should have the rights and access and who doesn't, then violence we find over and over throughout history is a natural result mm-hmm. because you're going to be willing to move beyond any sort of you know, political structure right. um, of how we should all get along or, or work together in order to defend your group and the rights that you believe mm-hmm. you should have to, to self-interested power. And so through the threat of violence or through violence um, enacting that. And so, you know, as you said, you know, just a second ago, 
as we look at global religions um, other than Christianity or we look at other nations, there isn't anything unique about Christianity or the United States where we would see this, you know, marrying of of religion with nationalism, Mm -hmm. right? But in our country and in the context that we have, our history, it is particularly Christian Mm -hmm. and a particular expression of it that really does move towards these idols of, of power, fear, and violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on, on power, I've been thinking about how uh, perhaps there's, there's no group that would be more invested in clinging to power than those who perceive that they're losing it mm. um, and how yeah. uh, what has been sort of just as you described your childhood, this assumption um, of the marrying of Christian uh theology, the Christian church with just what it means to be an American. And as demographically that has shifted the Mm. ways that, you know, that clinging to a power that uh, that some perceive sort of slipping through their their fingertips, um, and then I can easily see how the companions of fear and violence <laughs> mm-hmm. would be close behind. Um, I, I've been thinking about the Christian theologian and ethicist Reinhold Niebuhr, um, mm-hmm. who wrote, uh, sort of crafted this idea of Christian realism after World War II, mm-hmm. and you know the the church had really um, suffered. You know there had been this period of. Uh, uh, ultimate hopefulness, right? The social gospel movement, the yeah. God, you know, mm-hmm. the kingdom of God is on its way, yeah. and then Great Depression, and then the rise of Nazism, and then the Second World War, um, and Niebuhr trying to piece back together a theology for his moment, mm. uh, wrote a lot about power, and I was thinking this quote, goodness armed with power is corrupted, but pure love without power is destroyed. Mm. And so I love um, your description of power in the service of self Mm. or power in the service of an in-group or power Mm. in the service of an us defined against a them. Mm. Um, Ultimately, this is an idol because it um, uh, betrays what the gospel teaches us about the use of power, Mm. um, that even the one who has the greatest power chose to give that power away through the incarnation. I Mm. think about... um, in the second chapter of Philippians, this notion of, mm-hmm. you know, though equal with God, Christ put himself into the world and made the ultimate sacrifice. And so, this betrayal of the gospel that you describe is really a betrayal of the heart of what it means to be Christian, which is mm. the use of power in the service of others and ultimately uh, power as sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking also about how you um, you write from a particular place. Mm-hmm. You write as a Hoosier. You write as um, a professor here in the city of Indianapolis. Um, and Indiana sort of has a particular history when it comes to Christian nationalism. Mm. Um, the, this summer, a book was published, Fever in the Heartland, which talks about the rise of the KKK in the 1920s in the state of Indiana and the use of the Christian church and particularly Christian preachers uh, to proclaim the righteousness of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, Obviously, Christian nationalism um, is different from, though has um, some resonance with this Mm -hmm. uh, movement in the 20s. How do you see the church as either serving or resisting Christian nationalism? Yeah, well, and I think that's a really important question because um, there's so many variations, right? Whether we look over time historically or even today, um, the way that the Christian church either confronts or is kind of carried along with mm-hmm. 
the dynamics that are at play really vary. Um, and so if we look historically, like you're pointing out, we see that at any moment in American history, you can find those who were speaking clearly about the, you know, the, the anti-Christian mm-hmm. nature of slavery mm-hmm. um, or Jim Crow segregation mm-hmm. or white supremacy and um, what we saw with, you know, racial terrorism around mm-hmm. uh, the KKK. Um, even up through, you know, uh, the the war on drugs and, and, and how many of the laws were changed around how we prosecuted some of those things and, and the different racial disparities. So we have Christians that were a part of that work speaking to that. And then we have those that were arguing explicitly for those things and drawing upon Scripture mm-hmm. and drawing upon their faith, saying that this is the way that God has instituted it. And so both those things are happening at once. It's a part of our collective Christian tradition in this country that mm-hmm. I think it's upon us now to really look clear, clearly at that and clear-eyed. And I think this is something that you've, you know, shared in in your work and as you preach, where it does us no favors to just ignore that or to think mm-hmm. that that didn't happen or can't happen to us today mm-hmm. and to think clearly about maybe where are our blind spots today. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as we look at Christian nationalism— there are broader denominations and congregations that are making an effort to really learn not only what it is, um, but how it operates, where we go from here, what what role did it play in our history? Mm-hmm. Because where we find ourselves today is the product of choices that were made and things that happened in the past, and, and we aren't here by accident. Right. And so then knowing that what we do now matters for where we're going to go. Right. And so, you know, broadly— there is variation in, in what congregations or, or Christians across the U.S. are doing. Some are doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Some are leaning into it and using mm-hmm. it to draw people, saying, you know, we, we are a Christian nation. We got to take it back. This mm-hmm. is it. Mm-hmm. And then others are speaking out against it and mm-hmm. saying, you know, this harms our neighbors. This betrays what what Jesus came to do, what he, you know, commanded us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all those are happening. And so then I think it's really, you know, the, the, the goal then is to, to hopefully continue to, to help people to take a step wherever they are on their journey, but just take a step mm-hmm. towards confronting, mm-hmm. opposing, learning, mm-hmm. growing in that direction. Right. Yeah. Right. I know both, both within the church and among sociologists who sort of study religious trends, mm. um, there has been this, there's sort of a clear line um, of participation in faith communities broadly, yeah. um, participation in Christian communities specifically, membership in churches, and, and even among those who who claim Christian faith, and that line is downward. Right. Um, yeah. That There's been sort of a, a precipitous decline in faith affiliation, mm. um, particularly in, in recent decades. Um, and of course, among some, and you've described this well, among some, that's a, a sign of secularism's takeover and the need of, for the church to fight back and to fight back really by entrenched extremism um, mm-hmm. and sort of rally the troops for the cause. Yeah. Um, and, and others have really thought about has that movement, that sort of extreme movement um, alienated many from the church. Uh, just in terms of the research that you do, mm-hmm. um, is there a clear answer to that in the, in the statistics and the data? You know, I think there there is evidence to support um, this idea of a backlash effect that mm-hmm. 
as you know, as we look at our current context and as I study it and think about Christian nationalism in the U.S., it really is you know directly related to some of what happened in the rise of the religious right in the late 70s and early 80s, the moral majority, all of this. And they were responding to cultural trends in the 60s. And in some ways, you know, they were motivated a backlash effect of, mm-hmm. you know, the gender, sexuality, civil rights mm-hmm. movement, all these mm-hmm. things that were happening. Right. And so when we look at the rise of the religious right and what took place, um, when we, you know, we can graph the the level of Americans that are unaffiliated. And you can point to a specific year. I mean, it's right around 93, 94, where for 20 years, it had been eight, nine percent. And then it just starts to climb, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. And so this was when, uh, for many Americans, as we survey them or as we um, interviewed them or sociologists were, you know, back in that time in the 90s, um, finding that many of these folks started to see this close association with, again, this particular expression of Christianity with particularly conservative politics, mm-hmm. um, a different kind of brand of those politics too, um, because the Republican Party did really shift in the 90s um, as well. When that happened, folks that were Christian, were a part of those communities, started to think, well, that doesn't those politics don't represent me, whether they were, you know, Democrats or independents or moderates, it didn't matter, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't really represent me. And so then they start to disaffiliate, they opt Mm -hmm. out. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't really want to be a part of that. So then what happens is those left over, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of the average level of conservatism, whether it's religious or political within a congregation, you know, moves and becomes kind of um, in some ways purified, Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there are Mm -hmm. folks that were saying, well, this is good. We're getting out, you Mm -hmm. know, those that aren't committed. Mm -hmm. And so that then creates an echo chamber. And so now political scientists, you know, present really compelling evidence. And and I believe them where folks are choosing where to worship more um, from a place of does this align with me politically? Right. And that's where they're going to go. And it creates echo chambers where. Now we're opting into groups that we're going to hear back what we already believe um, and won't really be challenged in that and and move on. Now, mm. we see this mostly with, with those, you know, on the right um, because they're more religious. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in congregations more, but it, it has functioned, right, mm-hmm. to sort us. Mm-hmm. Uh, there really are fewer places where people differ yes. <laughs> politically, religiously from one another and are, you know— in community in some actual meaningful way. And so that has had real implications for the body politic, I think, as a whole. Right, right. And in many ways sort of mirrors the kind of sorting and polarity that we see in every other part of our lives, Mm -hmm. right? We're also shopping at different grocery stores and going to different (laughs) restaurants and seeing different movies and consuming different media of every type. Right, yeah. Um, It's been something that has has, uh, concerned me for a long time. I I call them sort of litmus test congregations where (laughs) – uh, before you even hit the pew, you kind of have a sense of the political environment that you're in. Yeah. Um, and my concern about that is not so much that um, that that people have strongly held political beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, it is that we're draining the uniqueness of Christian witness from the the uh, kind of. Uh, life of the congregation. Um, so when we become politically uniform within mm. a community of faith, um, we are less likely to be 
defined by our Christian witness and more and more likely to be defined Mm. by our political perspective. It loops right back to um, this, you know, folks leaving congregations Mm. because their politics don't align with the politics of the pastor or the church leadership. Um, And if our primary identity is our political affiliation or our strongly held political ideology, um, then we're only going to seek out those places that reinforce that. Um, Yeah. Well, and and really interestingly right now is, um, you know, as we collect data, political scientists are showing as well that even the term evangelical, Mm -hmm. um, and not to pick on it in any way, but as Mm -hmm. they ask folks, are you evangelical? Um, they're finding more and more that folks are opting into that label because they believe it aligns with the Republican Party. Like they're politically conservative. And so that's what it means to be politically conservative. You call yourself this and they don't really hold any, you know, historic evangelical beliefs or attend church or anything, but it's become a term that's aligned with it. And I think for the most part, that illustrates right. this sorting and this changing of what it even means. What what do those words mean? Right. We're undergoing a shift, I yes. think, in that sense. Yeah, I, I I read some of that as well in this this notion that folks who claim the title evangelical but don't belong to a faith community, and mm-hmm. that to me seems uh, quite in tension with at least the way that I've always understood <laughs> what it means to be an evangelical, which yeah. is to be yeah. uh, passionate about the gospel <laughs> and wanting to share the gospel and uh, join with others who have that have that similar passion, right, right, yeah. um, and and I do think uh, you know as Christian nationalism serves as a threat to the church, it's not just a threat to our Christian witness, but really a threat to the institution mm-hmm. um, of the church because of the ways that it exacerbates this decline in religious participation and frankly um, the the er- erosion of trust in institutions like mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been really taken with um, a, a phrase that um, I've heard Russell Moore use, which is that we're losing a generation of potential Christians, not because they are secular, but because they think deep down we are. Right, yeah. Um, and, you know, there there is, you know, the, the hypocrisy of the church has long been noted, um, <laughs> but there is a way in which this is an extreme example that mm-hmm. the church itself seems to be held captive mm-hmm. to an ideology that many would say is uh, not expressive of their Christian beliefs or, or convictions. Um, yeah. And, and one of the things I really appreciate about all of the work that you've done in um, defining Christian nationalism is your use of the phrase, a particular version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about sort of why it is that Christians might be best positioned to counter Christian nationalism. Yeah, I think that's the key question. And I think it's true that um, American Christians need to be at the forefront of confronting, countering this cultural framework because Christian nationalism, again, as we, as I define it, um, is the desire to see a particular expression of Christianity privileged over and above other expressions of Christianity, over and above other religions, over and above, you know, the rights of secular Americans. It, it wants, you know, essentially to dominate overall because an expression of Christianity that differs from it in, in any way, real way, is viewed as a threat let alone, you know, other religions. And so there's a particular historical, um, a particular history with that that's a part of that. And I think understanding that and and realizing it um, is incumbent upon Christians, whether, you know, that's some of what I felt in writing this book 
was that we have to speak clearly um, against it um, because we understand, or at least there are things that we hold in common with these folks. Because it isn't as though Americans that embrace Christian nationalism are somehow not Christians or not real Christians. Mm -hmm. And we should never say that because Mm -hmm. they would agree with those kind of historic Orthodox, you know, beliefs, the different creeds, you know, they would, they would hold those. But Christian nationalism brings with it this, a host of other cultural baggage that comes along and and it's not just adhering to these creeds, but now you have to hold particular political views viewed as moral. Um, You know, you have to, you know, work towards particular understandings of how society should be structured, who should have access and not all of these things become a part of it. And so globally, Christians that are looking at what's happening inside the U.S. are are confused and wondering what is going on. Or evangelicals even elsewhere come and, you know, an evangelical that embraces Christian nationalism, you know, evangelicals from Australia. There's there's one particular I'm thinking of that has written about this where he's just confused as to, well, why do you have to embrace these certain political views to then be a Christian when elsewhere – this isn't the case. So that really, I think, highlights it. And so the reason why it's so important for Christians to do that is, I think, to essentially own up to this history that we've been a part of um, and to own up to the fact that as you know, Christians in, in prior years and decades have pushed for more power and wanted to maintain that that we have wronged others. And so this isn't something where we have to like try and make ourselves, you know, feel bad and and all of those things. Um, but just being realistic that we're a product of choices that were made by others. And now mm-hmm. we're at a particular place and we need to do the work mm-hmm. to hopefully help build something different and new. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, in a sense, have been a part of, of what's happened. And if we want to see a, a you know, U.S. society that you know, allows others to have a voice Mm -hmm. and allows essentially for a a functioning democracy to exist, Mm -hmm. we're going to have to look long and hard at Christian nationalism because it it really is focused on tearing that down. And so we have to think clearly about what's at stake and our role in it. Yes. Yes. I think those of us who are invested in the future of the Christian witness um, have a unique responsibility to make sure that the kinds of Christian messages that we hold dear are given uh, a voice as well. Um, I worry a great deal, and one of the things that I so appreciate about both the book that you've written, but also the way that you've chosen to be sort of a public intellectual about this and not um, not only write for the academy or stay in the mm-hmm. classroom, but to sort of broadcast your voice more broadly, um, is that I've, I've been deeply concerned about um, those who claim to represent all Christian witness um, and who have sometimes the largest megaphones and microphones um, are often messages that I do not recognize um, my own faith and my own background and my own mm-hmm. um, you know professed beliefs in. Um, and so I do think it's important for those of us who um, have a different story to tell um, and have a different witness to give to not be shy about doing that and about yeah. doing it in a way that you know to use the language of First Peter is done with reverence and gentleness, but still making an account for the hope that is in us, mm-hmm. um, perhaps against. Uh, against those voices that sometimes, um, because of their extremism, um, get the the most attention. Um, yeah. 
your your description of tearing down and building up uh, fits right with the theme that we have this year at Second Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. We're talking about this being a time to rebuild. Um, And I'm somewhat borrowing from my friend Ibu Patel's um, language in a book he's written, uh, We Need to Build. Um, And the phrase that stands out to me is, you need to defeat the things you do not love by building the things you do. This book um, is uh, perhaps a bit of a departure for you uh, mm-hmm. as a social scientist and a researcher and a professor. This is really a book that is um, much of it written in first person um, and much of it uh, sort of intersecting your research work, uh, your scholarly work with your own journey. I wonder what impact it has had on kind of your faith mm-hmm. and your spiritual journey to have written this book and now to reflect on um, the ways that it it uh, the journey that it has taken you on. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think really what what became clear to me even as I finished it because books take a while just mm-hmm. <laughs> to not only write and then it goes into editing yes. and you see it every couple of months and then finally it goes to the printers and months later it finally comes out. So it just you know I'd finished writing it you know August of twenty two mm-hmm. right and then it finally mm-hmm. came out a year later. But looking back on it, realizing that, you know, this book kind of captures a particular part of the journey where I'm able to tell the story leading up to that moment, but that I'm still on this Mm. journey has Mm. become clear. Right. That there's a lot Mm. in the book that I think hopefully will be helpful to resource people or encourage folks or to challenge people to things that I've wrestled with over the years um, at whatever point of the journey they're on, but then realizing for me myself that this isn't the end of the story mm. for even my, me, like my faith mm. journey or what it means to learn more about Christian nationalism or how to confront it, that I'm continuing that because there's there's things in there where I'm like, oh, I see now where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. Not that it's different, but mm-hmm. it just isn't represented in the book. And so I think for me, that was a message that I hope to continue to share is that wherever you find yourself on the journey, it isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just where you are. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, whatever book you're picking up, that author is still on a journey. And I am too. Mm -hmm. Um, We all are. And so where we can be with each other at the particular places of our journeys, um, you know, holding prior versions of ourselves with, you know, some gentleness, uh-huh. right? Because uh-huh. we're, we all kind of come into this at different spots and, and, and knowing that at this moment too, there are going to be people at different spots to, you know, to, like you said, be firm, but gentle uh-huh. and, and continue on. So I think that was one thing that stood out is, is how much of this really is a journey and, and seeing that we're with fellow travelers. Uh-huh. And that I think is so important that we aren't alone we aren't, you aren't alone in asking these questions. Oh. The questions are good. And then finding fellows, fellow travelers to ask those with and learning from one another, you know, on, on maybe what's coming next or sharing what you've just learned and, and encouraging someone else. So that's been one of the key things that has stood out, you know, yeah. in the last couple of months. Uh, well, I'll just say, um, in my interactions with you and the time we've gotten to spend together, I think one of the unique gifts you bring is your gentleness and your sort of your willingness to be vulnerable. Um, and I think that's a gift this book gives that no um, pure sociological study of a religious trend could give. Um, and it gives us 
you, uh, your story, your testimony, um, and your willingness to then invite other stories and testimonies to be heard. I was recently in a gathering mm-hmm. that you were leading, and um, afterwards the comment was made, well, you certainly can't get mad at that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> you just embody, you embody a, a, a humility and a grace and a gentleness mm-hmm. that I think is so important because um, as with many things, mm-hmm. um, those who are, I would use the phrase, sort of captive to Christian nationalism um, are in many ways victims themselves of an mm-hmm. ideology that they did not construct but perhaps have inherited. Yeah. And it is very difficult to question something that has been, you know, up the water you have yeah. been swimming in yeah. throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I imagine that there are those who will be awakened to a different understanding through your book um, just because of the way you approach the subject. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, it's true, like, it's so easy to, you know, for me, look back and wonder, you know, what was I thinking? But then recognizing, too, that, well, we all, by accidents of history, are born where we're born. and start somewhere. And we start somewhere. And so, um, but even with the book, recognizing that... Um, if I put myself first and kind of point the finger at myself, then maybe making space where others can then, to the degree that they're comfortable, put themselves in those shoes or to think, well, yeah, maybe I kind of thought that too. But to point fingers at others, it's, it's hard to get a hearing, you know, um, who, who wants that really? Like, I don't like that either. I would rather kind of be, be shown along. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. It is incumbent on us to be Christ-like if what we are attempting to do is convey the message of Christ. Yeah, that's and great. That the, the the means and methods of our delivery are in many ways themselves the content of yeah, our message. Right? Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, um, back to this notion of rebuilding, mm-hmm. um, what kinds of values or virtues do you think could or should guide our rebuilding? And then perhaps as a, as a final question, um, I will not ask you um, whether, uh, whether or not you are hopeful <laughs> about the future uh, yeah. of the Christian witness, but I will ask you uh, to name a hope mm-hmm. um, that you have as you, you know, I, I love this image of, you know, you're continuing to be on this journey as is the church. Mm-hmm. Um, there will continue to be a strong Christian witness in this country. What is your hope for that Christian mm-hmm. witness? Yeah, so, you know, as we kind of continue on and build, I think in some ways I can skirt this and punt and maybe frustrate you a little bit, but as a social scientist, right, yes, I, I'm just going to study what people are doing and and not be as prescriptive. But, you know, the one thing that, and it kind of answers both questions, it gives me hope, is that I do see expressions of the Christian faith organizationally or even among individuals that... Um, highlight the creativity that they bring to their situation and what they're facing and recognizing those who have been pushed to the margins, who are being crushed by different social systems Mm -hmm. and using their skills and talents, um, using what is at their disposal in that moment Mm -hmm. to help bring those marginalized folks to the table, to help center their needs, you know, at cost to themselves or whatever else. And I think that is where we have to move. That's what I hope to see more of. But then, too, it gives me hope because I know that there's endless creativity that is at our disposal. And I think what what we have to do is train ourselves to look 
and and ask the question who's not whose voice is being ignored whose voice mm-hmm. isn't at the table right to get a view of well then who's being left out mm-hmm. how can we bring them in mm-hmm. um, and when we see what they're facing it takes empathy right we have mm-hmm. to be able to move towards them listen to them hear the the words of pain or anguish or whatever it is and then try to help them but also understand that their lives are wrapped up and a product of broader systems mm-hmm. of how our society is designed mm-hmm. and then what can we do to help leverage the you know the systems that work for us and i'm saying us like literally embodied mm-hmm. as white mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. <laughs> protestant men mm-hmm. um, they work for us and how can they work for others too and how can we bring them into that so it isn't just meeting the individual need which is important but recognizing that that individual is a part of a community that isn't being served and how can we work um, to change how society functions so that it can serve more because we are very fortunate to live in a country like we do Um, and I do believe that it can work for more Mm -hmm. that we don't have to have a a vision of scarcity, but abundance. Um, and, and not that, you know, we can solve everything, but that we can be a part of, of the ongoing work um, to help bring flourishing where we can, um, where we find ourselves. And so as I look forward, what gives me hope? Um, and, you know, part of it I kind of highlight in the last bit of the book um, where I, I recognized a little while ago, this was since the book had been completed but hadn't come out yet, where there are days where it just feels, and I'm, you probably feel this a lot more acutely than me as a clergyman, but where it's like, what good am I doing here, right? Like, it's kind of like in the uh, Pixar movie, The Incredibles, yes. where it's like, I just fixed this. Why is it broken again? Like, or, you know, a mother, I just cleaned this, you yeah. know, and I think she says that in the movie. Yeah. Um, how is this already dirty? Yeah. It, it feels that way where it's like, there's just too much. But then mm-hmm. there was a moment where I recognized that that has been a part of the human condition, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. since the dawn of history. And so it isn't as though... Second Presbyterian or Andrew Whitehead or whoever is going to fix anything, but that Mm. we can be a part of this history of people that in their moment, you know, stepped up to the plate and did what they could with what they'd been given Mm. and made a difference, made a change. Um, And it doesn't solve it for good, but it it has pushed it, right? It has has moved the needle somewhat. And I think that gives me hope that we, that I don't have to necessarily solve it, but that I can be a part of this yes. group, right? That is moving the needle um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's going to be new challenges that our children are going to face and that their children are going to face. Mm-hmm. And that is a part of, of this. So drawing on our Christian faith, knowing that um, God is with us in the journey and that we have each other and that we're going to continue to move on. Yes. Um, and, and that's been a part of, yeah, our story with, with God um, for a very long time, obviously. Yeah. So I think in that sense, I, I draw some hope from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, an, an idol is, uh, is anytime we create God in our image rather than the other way around. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite authors, uh, Anne Lamott, says, you can be pretty sure you've created God in your image when it turns <laughs> out your God hates all the same people you hate. Yeah. Um, 
we are challenged, uh, I think, by by your work, and that's exactly what we should feel, I believe. Mm. Um, you challenge us, and you inspire us, and you also give us good and important work to do um, to bring us back to what is the heart of the gospel, which is mm. to love God and to love our neighbors and to love everyone God loves. Mm. Um, and so I'm so grateful for the work that you are doing, for the witness that you are sharing, for the courage and boldness with which you are doing it. And I'm particularly grateful that I get to be your friend and get to be with you on this journey. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, we're so excited to have American Idolatry um, published and out <laughs> in the world yeah. and to follow your work as it continues. So appreciate your being here. Yeah, thank you. I, I do appreciate the invitation and the time together. And yeah, onward together. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Please subscribe and share with a friend and let us know what you'd like to hear in future episodes. I look forward to continuing the conversation on the next Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry. Until then, take care of each other. 